You're listening to the Beginning of Wisdom podcast with Andrew Schumacher. Beginning of Wisdom seeks to engage in theology and apologetics in the sight of God. You can learn more at beginningwisdom.org. Tonight, we are going to talk about Jesus and what he said about the law. And this is part six of our series on the Christian approach or relationship to the law. And that is uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're going to cover, we've up to this point covered, talked about the Torah um, now we're moving, this is sort of a biblical theology thing. So we're moving from the old Testament now into the new Testament. And of course we're starting with Jesus and, and his teaching itself, building on, on what we've already done. Uh, certainly later we will get back into some stuff with the old Testament, uh, to sort of flesh out some things. Um, I think because, uh, the, as you go through the basic positive presentation of anything, um, sometimes you do end up coming up with, uh, you know, there's questions and there's other other things that, that do happen. So anyway, um, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. I'm going to start this also by saying um, definitely check out in the, in the description there is a link to this whole series. Um, the, there's a playlist. Uh, I think it's called Christian Approach to the Law or something like that. And it is in there and you can watch all the other previous five videos that have been done uh, as we talk about this. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, as always, as well, we are going to do some uh, question and answer at the end. So certainly, you know, if you have questions, throw those in the chat, uh, stick the word question in front of it um, in all caps preferably and then we will we'll catch it and hopefully answer your question tonight if you have any questions about what we're going to talk about so let's let's go ahead and jump in so uh, once again just to kind of review a little bit we're going to go over just a broad outline a little bit of what we've talked about so far so uh, as we talked about Genesis presents obedience to God in two ways um, number one, it does have explicit commands, which predominantly are specific to certain people uh, at certain times. Things like don't eat the fruit, you know, Noah, build the ark, Abraham, come to this land, Abraham, sacrifice Isaac, things like that, um, that are specifically for specific people. Most of the commands look like that. And then you have um, most of the sins that there are narrative most sin is presented in a narrative so you've got the sin of cain killing abel the sin of um joseph's brother selling him into slavery the sin the the resisted sin of joseph uh, not sleeping with uh, potiphar's wife um and so you have these examples and, and many others within the 
the book of Genesis where sins are not usually presented with specific commands, but are, are presented simply as if, as if the, the person already knows that that is a sin. Um, now the Torah itself also, the, so that we talked about Genesis, then we talked about the rest of the Torah where it's get the giving of the law. Um, it clearly distinguishes these things just like Genesis. It has uh, clearly these eternal principles of justice that the same kinds of things that are wrong in Genesis are wrong in Exodus and Leviticus and, and on. But then you also have um, laws that are specifically given to Israel and are specifically talked about that way. You know, I give you this law because you are my people. I brought you out of Egypt, that kind of thing. So it's it. And these are religious observances, uh, the religious observances like dietary laws, the Sabbath, the feasts um, are presented differently within the Torah than the uh, the moral principles that that you saw already outlined in Genesis. Um, so those distinctions are foundational to the law. And we when we come to Jesus, as, as we be, as we'll begin to see over the next uh, few parts of this series, because um, we're going to be talking about Jesus for more than just one episode. We see that distinction continue. And so nothing, it's not that, you know, when Jesus comes and he teaches the law and he teaches on the law, it's not just, you know, do away with the old thing. No, this is a new thing, you know, nor is it, let's just keep doing the old thing the way it always was. Um, those distinctions continue to be important, but those distinctions uh, are now set in a context of the work of Christ himself. So, so we'll see that as, as we go forward. Now, today's main point, we're going to talk about uh, Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 20, where Jesus introduces his general relationship to the law. Um, so this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk some more about the Sermon on the Mount because this is not the only part where he talks about laws and commands by any means. Uh, most of the sermon's about that. But this is where he begins to really introduce it. Um, now, one thing that uh, we're going to do, just like we did when we were talking about the Torah itself, we're going to start with the text, we're going to draw out the meaning, and not try to, to impose things on it. We're going to what we learn is going to come from the text. So uh, to give you a little bit of historical context about this, um, and you know, this is just to give you a kind of put your head in the right space for what, what we're listening to. Um, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, so he went from place to place and, and preached and would have likely preached the same thing multiple times. Um, and Matthew's account, it is really important for several reasons, but it's likely he preached this sermon in more than one place. And in fact, that that would seem to be the case as you look at, at Luke, where much of the sermon is there in Luke, but with some, some slight difference differences. And, you know, the you know, skeptics like to point out, well, obviously this is the same sermon, but look at these differences. There's a contradiction. Well, he doesn't ever contradict himself in terms of what he's teaching, um, but the description or the, you know, what is said in the sermon maybe comes a little bit in a different order, things like that. But again, it's, it's not, Luke is recounting something Jesus taught, but maybe not from this particular moment, um, you know, where, where he's, he's doing the specific, you know, on this day, it might've been a different day, 
where he preached it in a little bit of different order or something like that. Um, now also, like Moses at Sinai, Jesus here is teaching from a mountain and teaching principles of law. Um, and so many believe that this is meant to parallel the beginning of you know, of the new covenant with the beginning of the old covenant, that this is sort of the Sinai moment for the new covenant for, for Jesus and his, uh, his ministry. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's some cool things there. Uh, won't have a lot of time to talk about all that, but, but, uh, just wanted to give you a little bit of historical. And then within the sermon, um, where this section kind of falls is right after just the Beatitudes, some preliminary statements about people being the light of the world, that kind of thing. Salt of the earth, he says, makes those comments. And then he talks about this, which leads him into talking about specific commands through the next uh, big, big section of the sermon. All right. So that's base, basic context around what we're, what we're hearing. Um, and, uh, Another thing I don't think I wrote down, but, you know, this is being preached to Jews in, you know, these are not, uh, you know, Gentiles there. I mean, who's to say maybe there were some Gentiles there, but, but basically he's, you know, Jesus came to preach to Jews. Uh, the gospel doesn't go to Gentiles till later. Not that he doesn't have any dealing with Gentiles at all, but, um, but this is uh, primarily he's teaching to people who are Israelites. They have the law, that kind of thing. So. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. All right. So let's go ahead and read it. It says, uh, starting in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one tiny letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all takes place. Therefore, whoever abolishes one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, this person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness greatly surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. All right, so that's the section we're going to be looking at. Um, now, there's a couple places, especially verses, uh, well, really 17, 18, and 19 are, are the ones where, that people have a lot of uh, disagreement about. But I think 20 is very important as we're going to see uh, as, as we go through it. So let's talk about verse 17. Um, modern trend, one thing I like about this, you know, you, you may have heard talk about this verse and, and the, they'll talk more about abolish versus fulfill. And you notice this translation I use says destroy rather than abolish. And I actually, I, I think this is a better word. Um, it's, it more accurately carries the meaning of kataluo, the, the Greek word. Um, other, if you go, you look up that word in a, in, and see where else it's used in the New Testament. Um, it uses other words like destroy, destroyed, thrown down, overthrown, overthrow, that kind of stuff. Um, it, it does also have a kind of some other meaning related to getting lodging. I, I have no idea why, but I didn't include that here, but, um, it is used for that. So I'm, you know, maybe just a, a homophone in Greek there that is just, I, this, it's like a different word, but it sounds exactly the same. I don't know. But anyway, relevant to what we're talking about, 
this idea of destruction being thrown down, being overthrown, majority and the majority of the texts that you find the word in with those types of, of translations are actually referring to the destruction of the temple. You know, um, Jesus says, you know, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And actually Jesus is doing a little play on words because that's in John 2 where he's actually talking about his own body and the destruction of his own body. But um, but he also does talk about how the temple will be destroyed and all that st sort of thing. So, um, and he's using this term. This this is the term. Fulfill is the word plerao. And uh, this verse, so, so we've got destruction, which means to come against, to destroy. Then we've got fulfill, plerao. And... Uh, to, there's a lot of meanings you can see here, you know, fill, filled. Uh, it does mean finished in Luke 7, 1, made complete. Uh, it's completed in John 7, 8 and Acts 12, 25. Past is, uh, and, and past is referring to time there in, in Acts 24, 27, just once something, sometime had passed, or it means filled up as well. So what is, what does it mean here? In in uh, in Matthew, well, if we look at these other, you know, let let we'll get to that. But let's let's talk about the fact that it is being used. You know, let's talk about these different renderings of these two words. You know, it it when you look at other ways it's translated, um, one mistake a lot of people make, and I think that you we need to be careful of and, and not make this mistake, is to to look for other meanings or other things um, that that we like better. You know, well, this one doesn't make sense to me, but I like this one over here. And so we just kind of throw it on there. Um, th that's a mistake. That's We don't just kind of pick and choose a good translation. Um, we try to understand the meaning within the context of the passage it's in. Um, you know, the, there's a I don't know who coined it, but there's a saying that, you know, words don't have meanings, sentences have meanings, you know, and, and words, you know, there are, they can be used a number of ways. You, you don't really know what someone means. If I just, if I just point off and I say, duck, like, am I telling you to like duck your head or am I pointing at a duck? You know, you have no idea just from the word itself, even from me pointing, you need more context from right there to know the meaning of the word that I'm using. You can't just look it up in a dictionary and say, that's the definition. Okay. Now I know, no, you have to use, you have to look at the context, but looking at these multi, you know, other ways that a word is rendered does help us because it helps us see that, um, a general feel. So number one there shows the general feel of the word. The the term katalua for destroy is is inherently it's antagonistic. Um, whereas fulfill is inherently harmonious. It's talking about, you know, to fill up or fulfill, like to um to complete, you know, to to that kind of thing. It's it's not there's no antagonism in the word fulfill. Um it also shows that um, and and seeing these other renderings of these two words specifically shows that it's a real facile argument to to insist that any indication that fulfill ends something 
means that it must be equivalent to destroy. But that doesn't make any sense. You know, when, when we look back at, at, at how it's translated in, in these other passages, you know, in Luke 7, it's just saying like when I, I can't remember exactly. I think it has to do when they were finished doing something, they went somewhere else. It was very it's a very mundane sort of text, you know, about just a very simple thing that happened. But if we say, oh, well, finished means it's just the same as abolish or destroy. So we could put Katalu in there. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. When they destroyed, destroyed what? It doesn't say what, you know what, because it's not, it's not what the word means. Um, the word means, you know, something specific, but I don't, I, I, I point this out not to say that I think that, that Jesus is necessarily, I, I think that he's speaking of a sort of, you know, a kind of an end, but not, you know, I came to end the law is what he's really driving at. At least that's not the main point. Um, I think what it actually means is um, is something we can pull from the context, especially when we when we look at the rest of Matthew. So when you see, but let's start by looking at this verse and and some of the other specifics, and we'll get to to more about Plerao. So. In the verse, he says, I've not come to destroy the law or the prophets. So when you see that combination of law and prophets, realize that's a common way in the first century to refer to the whole Old Testament scriptures. You know, you may hear people, uh, Jewish people or, or, you know, Torah observant people today use the word Tanakh. Tanakh is a sort of a made up word that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's a made up word that is based on an acronym of you know, and I don't know all the I don't know the names of all the Hebrew letters, but basically T N and K, their Hebrew equivalents. You know T for Torah, N for uh, Nevi'im, and and K for Ketuvim, and these words mean law, prophets, and writings. And this sort of threefold definition, which we also do see a little bit in the New Testament, um, maybe not with the word Ketuvim, but with Psalms. You know, there's there's a text somewhere that says. You know, in the laws, law, the prophets, and the psalms, and they the reason they use the word psalms for the writings is that it's the first book of the writings. Um, so you have that uh, as so law, and and my point of all that is to say, law and prophets. When when you see those juxtaposed like that, you realize Jesus is talking about all of the scriptures. In fact, yes, the threefold, you know designation is 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 was used was in use in use but but people often shorted it shortened it so you know law prophets and writings you know some people would just say well yeah in the law and the prophets it says and someone even further shorten it to just the law so when we see it that way we know he's speaking of the scriptures and not necessarily just talking about the parts containing commands um and subsequent verses discuss that commands are are part of what he's talking about but you know he includes the prophets here because it he's talking about the whole scriptures and and we'll see that now um plerao the word for fulfill uh you know he says i've not come to destroy the law or the prophets the scriptures but have come to fulfill them and this word uh, appears six times in the first, uh, in the first, uh, you know, in the, up until this verse, up until this point in the text. Um, 
so when he says law and the pro or when he says fulfill in in verse you know 122 215 217 223 315 and 414 every time it's talking about jesus fulfilling some text some prophetic text about him um and then it appears 12 times after this so this would be the seventh time and then there are 12 more and every time except for two also say also refer to some text that jesus is fulfilling uh, matthew is you know very kind of repetitive he did this in order to fulfill and and cites an old testament text and and it's prof from the prophets typically um but it's it's some some text that refers to jesus prophetically now so the most likely meaning of the term as we as we're looking at at the book of matthew is you know because we don't just say well luke it, it meant end so we're, we're just going to pluck that and stick it in here no we don't we don't just do that I, I already told you we don't do that kind of thing right we look at the text itself in the context and in the context of matthew the the term plerao is repeatedly vast majority of the time used in terms of fulfillment of prophecy and Jesus, again, he's not referring just to the law, but all of the scriptures. And he's saying, I came to fulfill. And obviously, it means to fulfill prophecy. Now, so when he says them, I've not come to destroy them. What is the them? Well, the them is the law and the prophets, right? And I've come to fulfill them, the law and the prophets. So... He's not coming against the law or the prophets. He's not coming against anything in there is what I what I, I hope you're, you're gathering from this. Um, I He's coming to fulfill them as one fulfills prophecy. Um, and and that that does. You know what? So so does that end anything? Well, in a way, um, and, and we'll see this uh, as we look at, at other things in more detail, but you know, our relationship to a prophecy, if we live before the prophecy is fulfilled versus after, changes. You know, when we look at a prophecy before it's fulfilled, our relationship to that prophecy as believers is to look at it as something that we are, you know, we look at it in hope. We say, look, God has promised that this is what's, you know, something that's going to happen that's going to indicate something he's going to do. And we are awaiting that to, to occur after the prophecy has been fulfilled this nothing is destroyed the text is still there and it's still true just as true as it was before but our relationship to the text has changed now we look at that prophecy and we see god's faithfulness and we see it now as a as a kept promise as opposed to a promise that we we look on in hope so so there's a there is something ended there you know our our relationship to the text as it pertains to something future has ended we we don't and so there's a fulfillment there's a completeness you know that that concept of something coming to an end isn't completely absent but it's not like the text goes away and we don't we don't need to look at it anymore um, it just changes with with respect to how we relate. So, um, and I think that when uh, as we look at the commands and 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 keep in mind, I I don't think at this point I I, I think that 
in a, in a broad sense, this this verse is inclusive of specific commands, but in but it's not really the main focus of, of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is going to shift to talking about commands in a little bit, um, but I don't think that's really the 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 main focus here. Now, um, so as we as we continue, uh, we go to the next verse. So verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one tiny letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all takes place. So again, so we've got, there's a, he's setting up the persistence of the scriptures. He's saying, you know, he, he parallels heaven and earth passing away with the the letter you know the smallest parts of the law passing away but again what does the law refer to now one could i i'm not saying that this is it absolutely has to be a certain way i i'm going to present what i think is going on here but you know the law again is a shorthand way of referring to the scriptures um he in john chapter 10 jesus you know, says it is written in your law and, and, and he's talking about Psalm 82. So, um, you know, Psalm 82 is not part of the Torah. It's not part of the, the T part that, that is referred to by the term law. But again, it doesn't have to be because this term namas that, that Jesus is using is, is a title for that is sometimes used of all of the scriptures. And the fact that he just said, the law and the prophets and, and, and what he's saying here seems to just continue that thought um, makes me think that he's not, again, he's not talking about specific commands yet. Uh, he will, but, um, but he's talking about the scriptures and they will not pass away. So some say, uh, now some do talk about when he says heaven and earth, that he's talking about the temple and they, they cite some extra biblical texts some first, you know, first century literature that seems to refer to the temple that way. But biblically, there aren't any references, you know, in the text of scripture, we don't have any references to the temple as, as heaven and earth. So I don't believe that when Jesus says heaven and earth here, he's talking about the temple. Um, he's talking about the, you know, the, the culmination of everything, you know, in the heaven and earth passing away and that not one little bit of the scriptures will be lost is, is what I believe he's, he's saying here. And I think that the key phrase to understand this is the term pass away. Um, so this is, uh, and, and I apologize if my Greek is, is, I mean, no one really knows how ancient Greek was actually pronounced, but you know, I apologize if it's not even close. <laughs> um, now it has a variety of renderings, uh, this, so the term pass away is, is really just one word in the Greek. But in Matthew and the other Gospels specifically, um, it often seems to refer to destruction. Um, so there's a this phrase that happens in three in the synoptics. He says, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And notice the, the parallel here. You know, he's talking about the law, which commonly refers to all the scriptures and you know, his own words will never pass away. And he's talking about, again, heaven and earth passing away. Um, he also says this, you know, when he says this generation um, in Matthew 24, 34, he says this generation will not pass away until, you know, 
you see the son of man. So coming in, in, in glory. So there's, there's all that stuff going on. Um, but again, the, this idea of pass away, it, it seems to entail a sort of destruction. And this is important as, as we, as we try to understand the text. So there's not really any text I can find where this phrase or this word that for pass away means something like becomes no longer binding or something along those lines. So it's not, you know, and, and so when he says not one letter will pass away from the law, he's not saying specifically not one letter will become no longer binding from the law. What he's saying is not one letter will be destroyed or lost from the law um, that that the the words will never pass away that the text of scripture will be preserved we will have the scriptures all the way to the end is is what i believe he's he's talking about the 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 promise of, of preservation of, of god's word there's not really any text again that that uses this this idea of whether it becomes relevant and you know there's you know, the, you know, as I mentioned, the, the term law and prophets law is used the same way as that title. Um, I'm, I said some of this stuff and I wrote it down in a different place, but John 10, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, he cites Psalm 82 calling it law. Um, in context, he promised in verse 17, he would not come to destroy the scriptures, but fulfill them in verse 18. He promises that the words will endure to the end you know, until all has been fulfilled, until everything takes place. Um, and I think, oh, and it went on. I, I want to point out one other thing, and I, I think I'll, I'll get to this in a sort of, I've got some anticipated objections I'll, I'll kind of get to at the end. But I want to point out when, uh, you know, consider consider the term, this word for pass away, you know, what's the likelihood Jesus means two different things, you know, by this, by this term, when he says until heaven and earth pass away, what does that mean? Does it mean till heaven and earth become no longer morally relevant or something like that? No, it means until heaven and earth are destroyed, are, are laid low through the judgment of God until they are destroyed. And, you know, not one stroke or letter will pass away from the law, will be destroyed. Um, and so I don't think pass away here is, is really even referring to whether or not it's, it's still relevant, you know, to us. Uh, but keep in mind, I think, as I hope I've, I've expressed at this point, you know, none of it stops being relevant. Um, it's just, again, what, what is our relationship to it? And we'll, uh, uh, and I, I'm giving you that as sort of a, a pri not not to, that I think I've proven it at this point, um, but as a primer, so you kind of understand um, where I'm going. But you'll see as as we as we begin to draw the meaning out of the text um, that that's that's really where I believe Jesus is going. So, but he here the main main thing to take away verse 18, God will preserve His word through all of history. And, and that's the main, the main gist of 18. Now in 19, uh, here's what he's, he says, therefore, so now based on what I've said, 
God's word, you know, I'm not here to destroy it. It will not be destroyed. It will endure till the end. That's the main thrust of, of 1718. Because of that, because of that, that preservation of God's word, therefore, whoever abolishes one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, this person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this is, this is a conclusion based on an argument, so to speak. You know, he's, he's, he's taught something and now he's, he's drawing out a conclusion from that. The question here is, is this, what, what is he referring to? You know, when he says these commandments, is he still talking about the same law, which I've taken to basically just be a reference to the scriptures as a whole, as, as opposed to specific commands, but including commands. Is he, is he talking about that or something else, or has there been a shift? And I would submit that there has been a shift. Uh, and I would point that out by looking at the, the terminology. So in verse 17, he says, I've not come to kataluo, the destroy, but plerao, to fulfill. And he's speaking of namos, the law, which is, again, sometimes the, the uh, title for all the scriptures. Here in verse 19, he doesn't use the term kataluo. He just he uses luo, which is, as you can see, it's part of that, but it's a smaller word. And some this word gets translated as abolish, you know, here in this translation, also as loosen or, you know, you may have heard, you know, anyone who loosens one of these commandments, um, which I think is not a not a bad one. But I, I but Luo is is less confrontational than destroy. It, it, it's just sort of, a, you know, kind of getting rid of something. And then instead of fulfill, he uses the word um Poyeo, which is keep, um, but whoever keeps them. So he doesn't, even, he's not even talking about fulfill now. And now he's talking about um, uh, entole. I, I, I may be getting these wrong. I'm, I'm not very good at the Greek letters. I'm, I left it only here in the Greek letters because I want to practice my Greek. <laughs> anyway, he's talking about commandments. Um, so before he's talking about, he used the word law. Now he's using the word commandments. And he says these commandments. Um, so I think, you know, he's, he's using all different words now than what he used before. Obviously, there's a relationship because he said therefore, but he's now talking in, in his own, you know, in, in different language. So obviously now he's, he's certainly talking about commandments, but um, because he's not using the same commandments, the key question or the same language, the key question is what are these commandments? Is he talking about the commandments of the Torah specifically, or is he talking about the commandments that he's going to present going forward in just the next few verses of the sermon and, and continue on with? Um, which which one is it or is it just both or is it just all all inclusive um so consider again we're 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 drawing meaning out of the text consider what we've gleaned he came to fulfill the law um and and that is based on the whole context of matthew comparable to fulfilling prophecy doesn't change the truth of the text it's still just as true but it does change our orientation towards it um he shifts from the perpetuity of scripture, you know, scripture, you know, 
it will not pass away until it is you know fulfilled or it is accomplished now he's talking about keeping commandments um and so he's using new language he's talking about a new thing uh, he goes on to make contrast at, you know after this between laws and customs and his own teaching you know he he goes on to say you have heard but i say and and does this over and over sometimes with straight up commands right out of the torah sometimes with you know just traditions and and things that were you know maybe in the in the talmud or things like that also he refers here to the future kingdom of heaven so he's he's now shifting our minds forward he was talking about the past you know, the law, the prophets, I'm not here to destroy those things. But now he's talking about what's going to happen in the kingdom. So he's shifting to forward thinking and, and future thinking. So I think the, these are good reasons to think that these commandments, when he says, you know, abolish, you know, whoever abolishes one of the least of these commandments um, is not is really about what he's teaching, what his own teaching is, and not necessarily about the Torah. Now, it's not, again, he's not saying, okay, so it's okay to just, you know, ignore the Torah, um, as we're going to see, and not in this episode, but in, in a later one, when he talks about the laws of the Torah, he, he amplifies the many of them um, in, in terms of, of his teaching. So it's not that he's saying, forget the old stuff, I got the new stuff. It's just that this text seems to me to be pointing to, I'm taught, you know, what, he, what Jesus is going to teach here. So I think that's all of these sort of differences um, point in that direction. Now, the obvious conclusion to those who know the rest of Scripture, you know, is he is there. There is a greater truth, you know. Okay. Oh, sorry. I I didn't realize I went to the next verse. So the next verse. So that's nineteen. Now, verse twenty, the last verse we're going to look at. Says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness greatly surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the obvious one, obvious, you know, to any well-trained Christian, you know, the conclusion we see is, oh, well, you know, you have to have the righteousness of Christ. That's how your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And I do believe that that is in the mind of Christ when he's he's saying this, but he has a a way. Uh, in the Gospels of of getting people to come to that conclusion that on their own by basically holding them up to the law and saying, you know, here's, you know, you want you want salvation. Here's the standard and they can't meet the standard. And it, you know, it it teaches them that they that they need to get their righteousness somewhere else. And and he promises that he says i will give you rest you know it's not it's not going to depend on your work but but it's a teaching method of getting them there so so i think that is sort of an ultimate truth that is being alluded to here but i think that you know that doesn't tell us necessarily what he means by these commandments but uh, you know it uh we, we we're gonna see some some other evidence that that seems to show he's talking about his own teaching here so the scribes and Pharisees, they were regarded by the people as the best among them. Um, so if anyone had a life of holiness down, it was them. At this point in the text, again, Jesus has not condemned Pharisees. And so we don't have anything from the context at, at this point in our reading to suggest that that he's, 
you know, he's condemning them in, in this text. And, and uh, I think he's clearly drawing from their reputation among the people as being the holy ones, the, the really good, you know, folks. Um, after all, you know, why would it be a great thing to surpass those terrible, wicked Pharisees, you know, he's not, he's not, when he says it must greatly exceed that, I don't believe he's saying, you know, it must greatly exceed the, the worst sinners among you, you know, your righteousness has to exceed the highest example you see that you think is the highest example of righteousness. It must be much, much higher than that. Um, and so if you think about it, what way were scribes and Pharisees righteous? You know, what, what could, what way could they be considered that way? Well, they strove hard to, to keep all the commandments of Moses and they had a bunch of other commandments and, and, you know, a lot of folks look at that and they say, the reason they had all these other commandments was in order to, you know, if, if all the commandments sort of create an area where you don't go here, they put their own commandments as a fence around that area so they don't even get close to, to disobeying the command. And that's kind of the, the idea. But it ends up being a just proliferation of, of laws and traditions that end up sometimes contradicting uh, some of those, those laws. Um, but the, so, so they, their goal was we want to keep all the commands of Moses. So, but, but consider that, you know, Jesus says keeping and teaching these commandments makes one great in the kingdom. So these commandments, if, if the Pharisees really aren't, you know, if we have to exceed them, then whatever they're teaching isn't what makes you great in the kingdom. And they were, you know, you know, some people say, oh, it's just all about their traditions. Well, that Jesus certainly condemned that, but he also condemned the even their own self-righteousness. You know, he talks about you, you tithe, you know, the mint and cumin and all that, but you, you neglect the weightier portions of the law. He says, you know, or he puts it, you know, you should have done that and do, do the other thing. Also, his point is like, you're so focused on these ceremonial aspects that you're neglecting the, the other stuff that's, that's much more important. So, um, the other thing is to notice here that he doesn't say anything like, you know, and, and, you know, the Pharisees keep the wrong commandments in their traditions. He's Jesus here. Isn't mentioning traditions. Um, he hasn't mentioned traditions. In fact, again, at this point in the text, he hasn't condemned Pharisees. He's just said, you have to surpass them um, in, in your righteousness. So he's speaking in terms of degree, not necessarily like they're doing the wrong thing and you need to do the right thing. He's saying, no, what they're doing, you need to do even better and more. You need to do something that exceeds what they do. Um, so... Jeez, that mean that would mean, and especially as we see this later on, that Jesus commands exceed the Torah. They 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 point to a higher righteousness than the Torah commands that 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 they're they're looking at. So that's through the just sort of verse by verse. Um, but what sort of conclusions can we draw from the whole text? So as a whole. Consider, you know, this is a passage talking about Jesus' own relationship to the text of Scripture. 
He starts by talking about fulfilling all the scripture, continues by saying that Jesus' commands are those kept and taught by those great in the kingdom. His commandments exceed those taught by the Pharisees, set a higher standard. So in a nutshell, um, if we're just talking about this text itself, um, these four verses, you know, Jesus, you know, is, is not, I think, trying to, trying to say, you know, Hey, just keep doing everything the way they always did it. Cause what is fulfillment if, you know, otherwise, but he's also saying, you know, don't, you know, don't just, uh, don't throw it out either. And it's the, the key thing is, I believe he's talking about, you need to listen to, to my words and, and that's how, and, and, and I'm about to expound on the commandments that w- would make you great in the kingdom of heaven and that teaching would make you great in the kingdom of heaven. So I think that's really what the passage is about. And I've, I've kept myself <laughs> from talking about a lot of opposing views and things like that. So I, I want to bring, I wanted to bring those in kind of here at the end to, you know, because people present this text a number of ways. Um, but I think, uh, I don't, I think that those things just kind of look at it somewhat superficially and don't really draw the meaning out uh, the way that I think we've done. So let's consider some objections to what I said. Um, so one objection you hear all the time, uh, you hear this from Hebrew roots, Torah observant folks that, that I've talked about a lot. Um, if fulfill means that it ends something, then it's really just equivalent to abolish. And therefore it can't mean that because, you know, he said, I did not come to abolish. I didn't come to do away with the law. And I agree. He didn't. Um, this is why I like the term destroy better than abolish. We, you know, we're used to kind of seeing this text and, and we just think abolish means, you know, nullify, you know, make it not. But nullifying something is doesn't carry that antagonistic, you know, come against overthrow sort of feeling that the term destroy does, which I think is better. Um, and it's really a canard. It, it can't really be proven. If I can show, you know, as I think I have, that there is a different and meaningful contrast between the two terms, abolish and fulfill, then there's really no reason from the text to insist on the, the, this bad argument. It's like, no, it really can mean to, that it that something ends without meaning destroy or about being totally equivalent to that. The, you know, if I finish a project and it's finished, and I complete it. I play rao it. I didn't destroy it. <laughs> it's not. These are not the same words. And 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 saying I completed is not equivalent to saying I destroyed it. Um, now I don't think, like I said, I I think that in the context Jesus isn't saying the law is complete and done. Jesus is saying the law is f- fulfilled. Like all other prof- prophetic texts, it's all about me. And it's all fulfilled and we, we relate to it now in the context of being, you know, of the fulfillment. And, and that's going to change the way we approach it. Um, another one is uh, uh, argument against what I say here is that scholars disagree with you. <laughs> so um, 
and, and uh, yes, yes, some scholars disagree with with what I presented tonight, and I don't care. Um, you can find scholars on all sides of any issue. Um, this is well known. And, and I would say that scholarship is really valuable for work in data and, and finding patterns and things like that. But often their conclusions are not well reasoned. Um, they have everybody, including scholars, has biases and um, that colors the ultimate conclusions that they come to. Even if they see the text and they say, yeah, I mean, you know, I see the text here, 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 but I'm going to go over here for my conclusion because, you know, of reasons. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't care what, what a scholar uh, concludes. I will listen to people who are well, you know, who are smarter than me and know more about it than me to, to understand their reasons for what they conclude. But if, if the two don't really connect logically um, in a compelling way, then I'm like, well, that's cool. And I thank you for, I've, I've learned more about this text, but I still don't accept your conclusion. So, um, you know, if, if you, and, and if you have an objection to what I said and you like a certain scholar's argument uh, against it, you know, I welcome you to reproduce it and we can examine its value. Um, just citing a scholar that says, Anyone who says this is, is silly, is is itself silly. Um, another objection, David Wilbur responded to you on this. So um, you may not know, I haven't really talked about this on this, this show, but uh, a few months ago, um, a, a person who works for 119 Ministries, but has his own uh, YouTube channel as well, uh, David Wilbur, he's, he said, you know, he's Torah observant. He doesn't really like the Hebrew roots label, but you know, whatever. Um, he responded to something I wrote on, on this and, and I want to make a couple point on, points about it. So about three months ago, he responded to a blog series I did on this passage that I wrote over two years ago. Um, and that series was really meant to show possible alternatives to the, the standard sort of Hebrew roots position and it did, it did that. It showed here's some reasons why you don't have to come to the conclusion that they did. Um, and, and he didn't really refute that those were, you know, other possible, you know, reason, you know, things you could come to. Um, mainly his, his video uses this sort of scholars disagree argument. It was, is he did, did that a lot in the video and that's a appeal to authority. It, it doesn't carry any real weight. Um, without seeing the arguments themselves. And uh, it, and this video, this, what I'm presenting tonight, it really reflects continued refinement on, you know, that was from a long time ago. And, and uh, I, I find it curious that out of all that I've produced, you know, dozens and dozens of, of, of video content on the Hebrew Roots movement, I've done a, a whole series that I'm still going to finish someday, um, talking about the gospel and going through, you know, verse by verse, pretty much through Paul's writings through, I did Galatians and Romans to show that the, the Torah observant Hebrew roots position on Paul is, is untenable that they can't walk through the text like that. He didn't respond to any of that stuff that was, that was more recent took one of the very first things I ever did on the text. And, and again, so I'm, I'm not saying because it's old, I don't agree with it anymore, but I'm, I'm just trying to express that it, it wasn't, it wasn't intended to be what I think 
this video really is, which is let's let's see what the text says in context without the context of what the antagonists say. Let's just look at the text itself. And I, I looked at the text in that series, but it was more to uh, to talk about the you know the Hebrew roots movements arguments and and how you don't have to read it the way that they do. Um, also, he he falsely made the claim that I simply assumed my view of Hebrews and imported it into Matthew five. So I I'll get I'll get to that in in a moment. Um, that he didn't really substantiate it. He just he just asserted that. <laughs> um, and the again the blog series lays that argument out clearly. It doesn't just assume. Oh yeah, well look at look at Hebrews. Therefore, you know, we we have a problem here in Matthew. So um, the last thing, and then we will go to your questions. Are some challenges and, and implications uh, that I want to draw from this text again for for those who who would disagree with with what I I'm presenting here tonight. Um, there are some you know, serious Torah observant slash Hebrew roots deficiencies when it comes to this text. I've not come across any argument from the text to substantiate the statement that if you think fulfill means to bring to an end, it's the same as abolish. That's always just been flatly asserted, never defended from the text. Um, as I hope we've shown tonight, uh, careful reading, understanding the meanings of the word shows that there is a meaningful contrast uh, that is much better and more faithful to the text than the sort of end condition end versus continue um, paradigm that that the Torah observant Hebrews folks are using. Um, there really is a big problem with interpreting pass away in verse eighteen as change in practice or become not binding, or whatever they they want it to mean, um, because it ignores that the same word is used in the same verse about heaven and earth. So it's it's got to carry pretty much the same meaning um, toward both those things. And second, it requires that literally every command must be in principle still in effect in the same way that it always was. Um, but this is contradicted on several levels. So now we're going to talk, I'll briefly talk about Hebrews. And I'm just going to do these, this one section here. And then uh, we'll, we'll be pretty, pretty much here at the end. So, um, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this. It says, For the law, possessing a shadow of the good things that are about to come, not the form of the things itself, is never able year by year by means of the same sacrifices which they offer without interruption to make perfect those who draw near. For otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the ones who worship, having been purified once for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in them there is a reminder of sins year by year, for, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So Hebrews clearly states that the sin offering, and I'm specifically talking about that one, not all the other offerings, because you don't, I don't need to talk about the other ones. Remember, it's the tiniest stroke of the pen, right, that, that wouldn't pass away. The sin offering would have ceased if it could have taken away sins. But then Jesus' sacrifice did take away sins, so it has ceased. Um, that, that's inescapable from the text. Um, in what sense, I would ask, is the sin offering, the sin offering specifically, still in effect? 
when we don't have any sin to atone for because of Christ. Um, I'm not talking about cleanliness laws or being clean to go into the temple or any of that stuff. I'm talking about the sin offering to take away God's judgment and grant forgiveness. That's what the Torah says the sin offering does. But now Jesus has done that specifically. Um, it clearly says then in Hebrews 10.9 that he takes away the first to establish the second. So, you know, some, some have argued that, well, it's two different lines of sacrifice. And I think there's a little bit of truth to that. I think that when the Old Testament sacrifice took away, you know, it didn't take away sins, but when it said it forgave or atoned for sin, it's speaking of an earthly culpability. Um, you know, you look in Deuteronomy at the judgment, and, and I did I talked about this a little bit ago when I talked about sacrifices, but um, when you look at the uh, the sin offering and how, or when you look at the judgments in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the judgments, uh, blessings and curses, that kind of stuff, all of the curses are earthly. It says, you, you know, if you if you disobey. You will be have famine. You will be, you know, have pestilence. You have enemies that will scatter you. You'll go into captivity. It's all earthly things, earthly consequences for, for their sins. It's it's being saved from those consequences that that the forgiveness and the atonement and all that stuff in the in the law is pointed to. It's a real atonement, but it's an earthly one. Jesus' sacrifice is the real atonement for sin that actually takes away sins, as, as Hebrews talks about. But, you know, so some have argued that, that, it's, that the sin offering is still in effect, but it's only in the way that it was always in effect, not referring to taking away sins. And I say, well, that's... It true is so far as it goes, but that's not the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. In verse 9 of this chapter, he says, He takes away the first to establish the second. He takes away the, the sin offering that doesn't actually take away sin to establish the second, the real offering of Christ that, that does take away sin. So, um, so if the... The Torah observant position that the tiniest part of the law will not pass away means all things remain, then how does the sin offering remain? You know, again, based on what we see there, uh, you know, Hebrews is, is coming at the same issue from a different angle, but it's, it's pointing to it. Um, and how, and I, again, I don't think it's all based on, you know, just taking that conclusion of Hebrews. We can, we got our conclusion from Matthew without without use of Hebrews. But there's a huge problem with Hebrews if you take a different conclusion from Matthew. Um, and, and what about, there's some other, other issues. You know, what, how do Levites continue to break camp in the wilderness? FYI. Um, so this Numbers 10.8 talks about Aaron, Aaron's sons and them breaking down camp, you know, the temple, to, to move to somewhere else in the wilderness. Um, and it says that this is a command forever, it's, it's everlasting. Um, but once they got to the land and went to their houses, they, they never, they didn't do this anymore. It was not, there was no purpose 
you know, for that particular command anymore. It was specific to specific people at a specific time, just like back all the way back in Genesis. Um, but if not the tiniest part will pass away means not the tiniest part of the law will stop being, you know, needing to be imposed, then how come we don't, you don't know, they didn't keep doing that. We're, and where does God judge them for not doing that anymore? Um, again, if it will not pass away, why has it passed away? Um, you know, again, uh, really <laughs> what we see is that the term for pass away doesn't mean no longer be binding or something along those lines. It means get destroyed and, and the law will not be destroyed. Not one bit of it. It will all be there and it will all be relevant in some way. Um, but it will be fulfilled and, and how that looks we'll get into even more as we continue, um, in this series. But, uh, for now I'm going to go ahead and go to your questions. So, uh, let me go ahead and pull that up real quick. Actually, see if I can just grab it from right here. All righty. So I know we had some, saw some of them kind of zip by in the, in the chat. Um, okay. Uh, question from Max Hyatt. Can you please break down Matthew 23, one through three? So let's go ahead and look it up. I'm 23. Okay. And let me show it to you guys so you can see what I'm reading. All right. So Jesus says, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. Therefore do and observe everything they tell you, but do not do as they do for they tell others to do something and do not do it themselves. So, um, so he said, Jesus says, do as they tell you, right? Uh, and they're teaching the law of Moses. So, so here's the question is, and I'm, I'm guessing that the main point of the question is, you know, shouldn't we continue to keep the law of Moses just like what he's talking about? But notice that Jesus is, is speaking to the crowds and his disciples at this moment. And at this time, Jesus hasn't fulfilled the law yet. I mean, he hasn't done everything to, to bring about the, the, you know, he's, he's taught on the coming, you know, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that, uh, you know, of the kingdom of, of God, but he hasn't, you know, inaugurated it yet. And I, again, I don't think, I think that the people he's talking to, they sh absolutely should continue to, to, or they should do the things that, you know, that the law of Moses says it's, and, and, and just in just the same way that it says it, this is, this is happening historically prior to, you know, the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. So there, things did change at that point. And I don't think that means everything changed and everybody needed to stop doing the law or something on the, along those lines. Um, but things did change and, but those things hadn't changed yet. So again, it, it, the other thing is, is consider the, so the historical context is this is before the resurrection and, and the coming of the spirit and all of that. 
but also what's the main point of the passage? You know, again, is, is Jesus main point in this passage to expound on how you should do the law of Moses? No, he's expounding on the fact that when the Pharisees just read from the Torah, you should do what they say because it's the Torah, it's the word of God, but don't do what they do. And this is the main thrust of where he's going is they tie up heavy burdens. They, you know, they do all their deeds in order to be seen. They, they're hypocrites. You know, he, he, he's talking about, you know, that's where he's going. It's like, despite the fact that they at times do preach true things and you should do them because of the word of God, you don't, don't try to be like them is, is the main point of the whole passage. Um, and so it's, it's just a historical, you know, different historical spot that I think is, you know, and, and I would say today, you know, when you read the law of Moses, you know, you should observe, you should observe it, but you should observe it in light of the teaching of Christ and, and the apostles. Um, don't just read the law of Moses in its, in its own context and, and grab and pretend that you can grab that context and apply it to yours because the Christ came in between those two things. And there's that we should, we should take a pause and, and take a look at how the new Testament looks at it and, and then, you know, read it in light of that today. But when Jesus said these words, that wasn't the case. And so, you know, there was no, no other context except what it said in the book, in the book, you know, law of Moses at the time. Uh, all right. Jeremiah Lawson asks the question, could verse 19 be talking about all the commands he's about to talk about? I, I think so. Um, in, in a lot, I think, and we'll get into this in more detail in, in another, I, I can't, I'm not sure if next week we'll do the next part of this series, but in the next part of this series, we will be talking about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe not every single verse, but but how Jesus approaches the law in there and also in other parts of the Gospels. And, and I do think that I believe that when he's talking about, you know, you know, he who keeps these commands, you know, he's talking about his own basic teaching on the commandments of God. And that's what he's, he's really getting at. Um, let's see. The next question comes from Francisco RM. He asks, what was Peter doing exactly in Galatians two twelve? Was he just sitting in the table with Gentiles or was he eating unclean food with them? Some Hebrew roots argue that he was not eating unclean food. Um, so Hebrews 2, uh, it says, or sorry, not Hebrews, uh, Galatians 2. Let's go take a look. And I hope that everybody hears. I mean, we, we don't, it doesn't, your question doesn't have to be about what we talked about tonight directly. Um, but because, uh, yeah, Galatians 2, we didn't talk about that, but there's some good stuff. So in Galatians 2.12, let's go ahead and read the text. Um, uh, we'll start in verse 11. It says, But when Cephas, who is Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was condemned. For before certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he was afraid of those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined in his hypocrisy with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away from them in their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not being straightforward with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of them all, If you, although you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you try to compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So I think that uh, the main so the main thing going on is Peter was sitting with the Gentiles and 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 it's important if you look at the study the concept of table fellowship throughout Old New Testament like who you eat with is someone who's they're part of you know your your community they're you know when when they come to your table you know when you're together it's it's uh it's a way of talking about someone being part of the kingdom being accepted uh it's it's a big it's a really important thing so for for peter to stop doing that with the gentiles it isn't just him being rude um he he may not mean to be doing it but he is symbolically basically kicking them out of the kingdom so it's it's very important this is a big deal and and this is why why paul brings it up but the question and i think the question is closer is more likely tied to uh, verse 14 there where he says although you are a jew you live like a gentile does that mean he ate unclean food unclean meat it's it's hard to say for sure <laughs> but i would just i i wouldn't you know, hang my hat on it to say, oh yeah, he was definitely eating the unclean stuff. Um, maybe I, I don't, again, my position theologically is that, that that's, you know, Jesus declared all foods clean and, and, and it does say that it's not a translator insertion or something. Um, he really did. And Paul taught all, all foods are clean, all that kind of stuff. So I think Peter, you know, it, it would, it would have been fine for him to have been eating, you know, meats that, that the Gentiles ate. Um, but it's also fine not to, you know, it was also fine if he wanted to continue to keep those dietary laws for himself. There, there's nothing wrong with that either. So, but I, I th I've never heard a compelling, definite repudiation of him eating unclean, you know, what, what the, the Jews considered unclean um, uh, that, that could, you know, survive that, that really makes, you know, draws the meaning out. Like we're trying to do in, in Matthew from this text, it says, you live like a Gentile. What does that mean? You live like a Gentile. What does he say? And he, and he's kind of saying this to Peter in the present of this situation. So he's already withdrawn from the Gentiles and it's just eating with the Jews and, and Paul is saying, but you live like a Gentile. Well, what does that mean? Now you, you live like one, but you won't eat with them. Um, and now you're trying to compel Gentiles to live like Jews. What's going on? I really think he's, you know, I think that what he's eating may be part of that. But I, I, don't, I don't see a real solid, you know, drawn from the text sort of meaning of live like a Gentile that doesn't include in some way not doing the ceremonial parts of the law the same way that that the Jews do. I mean, what else could it mean? Um, you know, it oh, you live like a Gentile means 
I don't know, not keeping the the traditions of the rabbis. I don't know. It, I've I've heard people try to insert all kinds of things in there, but you know, he's he's mainly talking. I don't think that's the main point of the text. You know, talking about what he eats, but I think he is. Uh, you know, that could be included in it as a as a something to be to look at. All right. Uh, let me see. That is what I've got there from that section. Let me just double check here real quick and see what else. Um, seen lots of good comments going by and always good discussions. So, um, so one thing I, I want to point you guys to, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, they, uh, uh, like I said at the beginning, um, Definitely check out if you haven't, if this is your first time seeing the show or um, your first, maybe not your first time seeing the show, but your first time in this series. This is part six <laughs> of this series. So definitely check out that playlist in the in the description and I will continue this series. I've got at least three, maybe four more, you know, episodes on Jesus and then we'll talk about you know, the other apostles, you know, Peter, Paul, that kind of stuff and, and kind of con conclude everything. Uh, I've kind of given you some of my conclusion already as far as the, the Christian and the law, but we're going to start to see that even more and more explicitly right there in the text. So with that, I thank you guys so much for being here. I'm glad I could be with you and um, I look forward to seeing you next week. You guys have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Beginning of Wisdom podcast. You can follow Andrew Schumacher and the ministry at beginningwisdom.org, where you can find links to the YouTube channel and follow on social media. Sign up for email alerts to never miss new content. Please like, share, and rate the episode if it has blessed you. God bless and always be ready.